Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God, I'm so glad you're here. My apologies for last week. If you're a follower of mine on SoundCloud and all over the world, my, my apologies last week. We had some technical difficulties, but we're back this week with a new sermon for you. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, 21 through 41. And I hope that's why you came to listen. I hope that's why you came to church today. I hope that's wherever you go. I hope that you not only listen to me, but I hope that you have a real home church as well, too, where you're going and you're edifying other people by you being there and, and other people are being edified by you being there. because and, and that, of course, you're there to seek God and know more about God and know how to follow Him or to come to follow Him because that's what church should be all about. Church shouldn't be all about entertainment and being entertained and going there to have fun. It's nice to have fun with our friends, but church and the reason we're supposed to go to church is for God and for edification from God for us and for edification that we can give other people. Anyway, if this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed from McKinney, Texas. This is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. We're going to be in Acts 19, 21 through 41, I should say there. But before we start, we always start with a word of prayer because we have to ask God to bless our hearts and help us to understand His Word because we know that without the Holy Spirit of God to train us and teach us, then we can't understand the things of God. So let's pray, please, and join me if you would. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. Thank you so much for your great love to give us a new day. Lord, there's many people, Lord, I don't know the number, but I know it's astronomical. Lord, there's, there's many people that didn't get this new day. As yesterday was the last day that they were alive on this earth. And there's estimated an X amount of million of people, millions of people that do not live from one day to the next. They die. And we have a birth rate and a death rate. And so, Lord, there's many people on this earth that didn't get to wake up this morning. They're, they, 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 found them, they find themselves, Lord, or... They, their bodies are found, Lord, under the earth now instead of on top of the earth. But for those of us that are still alive, thank you, Lord God, that you've given us a new day. Thank you, Lord God, that for the life that you give us. You give us life and, and, and breath in our lungs and, a, and, a, and a energy in our bodies, Lord, and I thank you for that. We thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, and those of us that are either seeking you or those of us that truly love you already and are yours. Lord God, I thank you for your word that you give it to us to, to show us a godly way of living and to show us how, how to please you and how to know you and, and so on and so forth, God. We, we pray today that you would help us understand your word, help us understand all the things that you have to say to us, Lord. Help us understand. Please, God, help us understand. And um, Lord, may you be glorified in all that I teach and may you be glorified in our lives. Whether we already know you or those are there's some listening out there that don't know you, may you be glorified in their lives today as maybe today they come to know you. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Again, Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Give you a moment to eat, uh, open your Bibles and get there if you're not already there. Title of our sermon today, The Crazy frenzied Ephesian mob. Again, the crazy, frenzied Ephesian 
mob. And if you've never read this section of scripture, I hope that you'll see that the title is very appropriate for what happens here because we do truly see a crazy, a wildly crazy, murderous, and frenzied, just no brain mob in Ephesus with some people with some things that happen. I hope you're ready. We're going to read it. You can follow along or listen along, whatever you'd like. Acts 19, 21 through 41, Luke writes these things for us. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed at Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling in disrepair, but also the temple of our great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Wow. And great is Diana of the Ephesians. I put the wow in there, of course. Two hours, really? The same thing? Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who, have ne- who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, two weeks ago, Luke wrote to us earlier in Acts 19 and told us that God worked some unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Remember that, Acts about 19, 11, roughly? Unusual is right. Remember, God had given Paul such an anointing in Ephesus that even pieces or, or, or garments or pieces of fabric would come from his body to a sick or ill person or a demon-possessed person. And as soon as the person would get it or the demon-possessed person would get it, the illness was cast out or the demon was cast away. Wow. Pretty awesome, unusual miracles, I'd say. And remember, his were such amazing and unusual miracles that some wandering Jewish exorcists 
Remember we talked about two weeks ago that the Jews had ways, and even the Bible talks about ways of exorcism, so the Jews had ways. But these wandering Jewish exorcists hear of these powerful ways that Paul has of casting out demons. And so they think they're going to steal some of his thunder, and, and they think, well, we're just going to use this name Jesus Christ like, you know, some magic ornament or some magic amulet or something, and we can just, you know, do this, you know, thing really quick. Their ways were very labored and, and slow moving. But did that work? Well, the Bible says no, not a chance. They, they didn't have any luck. Remember, we talked about how they weren't the friends of Jesus Christ. They were, they were, they just thought they could just use his name. Like, you know, I could uh, throw salt over my shoulder after I uh, did something or spilled salt or something. Like it was some kind of magic ritual. But Jesus Christ is not a magic ritual. He's the king of all creation. God of gods, Lord of lords, kings of kings. So no, remember they were overpowered and the whole story was about how they fled out and you know, the, this, the, how, how Christ's name was magnified and people got saved. Awesome section of scripture for sure. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, today on to our new section, moving on to today's verses, we open up with Paul here seemingly just finishing his two-year teaching assignment at the Greek school, remember the school of Tyrannus. And since he seems to be at the end in Ephesus at this school, uh, the way the scripture is written here, it looks like God begins to give him a new desire. Uh, maybe God's got, or de God definitely does have a change of work plans for Paul in the future. Look at Acts 19, verses 21 through 22 again. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I had been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of, his, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So notice Luke wrote there, when these things were accomplished and when Paul had went through or had passed through Macedonia. These statements are the ones which lead me to believe that he was talking about the end of his two-year stint in the school of Tyrannus, as well as all those unusual, amazing, I call them amazing, unusual miracles that he did there in Ephesus. Luke also wrote there, notice that Paul purposed in the Spirit. That would be the Holy Spirit, not his own spirit, but Paul purposed in the Spirit. So he kind of told God, you know, God, this is what I think you're leading me to do. So I'm, you know what, Lord, in in your Holy Spirit, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this, that, that he must also see Rome. I believe the phrases, when these things were accomplished, when he had passed through Macedonia, and referring, uh, referring to his prior journeys through those lands. For remember, he had previously, before this section of Scripture, throughout the years that he'd been ministering for the Lord, been through all of these lands, ministering, planting churches, and so on and so forth. And here we see there that he also purposed in the Spirit to go to Rome. This is his desire to go back to Jerusalem, probably to visit the original apostles, and to the Jerusalem church body. But then he says, I want to go back to Rome. What I believe we're reading of here, I believe we're seeing, because I know the way Acts finishes out, and I know the way history records the end of Paul, but we're, what I think we're reading of here is God putting a desire in Paul's heart for the last leg of his journey on this earth. He will, shortly after this, he will leave Ephesus. He'll then go to Jerusalem for a short time, and then in Jerusalem, he'll actually be arrested um, by, for his faith in Jesus Christ by or because of the Antichrist Jews that are against him in Jerusalem. They don't like him preaching Jesus. He's got a bad name. You know, he's been turning a lot of people away from Judaism and a lot of you know, Gentiles away from, you know, are into, into Christ. And so kind of like he's been hanging out with Gentiles. So he's not the most popular person. So 
After his arrest, the Jews plot to kill him because they hate him so bad. He hears about it, and then he petitions to stand before Caesar because they want him to bring him to the council there. They want him to bring him there, and then on the way, they want to kill him. But he hears about it. He says, I petition to stand before Caesar, who's in Rome to be tried for his crimes, which weren't, which weren't crimes at all. Remember, all he did for a crime was preaching Jesus Christ, and that's that way in some countries today. It is a crime to preach Jesus Christ. Uh, and it is in Rome that he will finish out his life, uh, then perishing by the hand of Nero in 65 A.D., or roughly 65 A.D. And today, again, I believe that we see God putting the desires to go traveling again for the gospel's sake in his heart in order to get God, or in order to get Paul where God wants him to be for the last parts of his life. Uh, we are going to all die at some point. And so, you know, what, what better way to die than to die for the glory of God. You may be saying, well, that's not right. God wants, you know, he's setting that up for Paul to go die like that. Well, we're all going to die. You know what? God says, hey, Paul, you're going to die for my glory. You're going to die. And Paul did so much for the gospel in Rome the last years of his life. It's just so amazing. Backing up to where Paul is in our text today, he doesn't go on his journey just yet to Rome. Always God's timing for his kids, you know. So instead of Paul setting out on the last journeys of his life, he, as verse 22 says, sends two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, into Macedonia, while he stayed in Asia for some more time. A time, unfortunately, that Paul saw some more foolish persecution by some folks that profited financially from the worship of one of the greatest false goddesses of Paul's day, and that would be the false goddess of Diana. So we got a lot of section to get through. We got a lot of verses to get through. So I'm going to teach on this as I go. I'm going to read the verse or read a section of the verse and then talk about it for just a moment and then just keep on moving on. So I'm going to kind of move quickly here, pretty quickly from verse 23 through 41. So you want to keep up. It's a little bit different than I normally do. But starting in verse 23, we see this. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And that would be a great commotion about Jesus Christ. Of course, in the Christian faith that he set up before he resurrected, before he ascended to heaven. And of course, uh, there was also a great commotion about Paul, uh, one of Jesus Christ's number one preachers, right? What were people having an issue with? Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith. I'll call this tradesman the ringleader. You'll, you'll see that as we move forward. Why? I call him that. This a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So Demetrius was a metal worker. He would, him himself, make his money off of the sale of these little idols, these little figurines, you'll call them, uh, of the goddess Diana. And that's what he and other people did. And he says that he, he, and, him, he brought, and he and to the others brought no small profit, which means that he made them. He worked with other tradesmen. He worked with other craftsmen. And then they sold them. So it was kind of like a, a revolving business, kind of like, you know, they, they were all in business together. And their business was selling these little shrines of Diana. So that's what they did. And so that's what he made his profit, and that's what his craft was, and that's what he did. Pe people would sell these little silver figurines, uh, and they would set, and then people would buy them, and then the people that buy them would set them in front of them as little idols and worship them. And they worship them to receive uh, favor 
or, or a petition of the, the, the real false goddess, of course, which couldn't be seen. But this, this idol was kind of a representation that the, 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 the goddess would see, oh, look at my, you know, my faithful worshiper there worshiping you know, me and that little idol there. And then they would, you know, they'd look for favor and ask for petitions and ask for things. And so that's kind of how, that's what people did with these little figurines, these little idols that they'd put before them. Diana was a super popular deity in the Greek culture. Not sure why, as she was only the goddess of the hunt or in the moon and fertility, women would pray to her uh, or <laughs> pray to the, to the figure in the sky, whoever that is, which is not a god at all. But anyway, they'd pray to her if they wanted to get pregnant. Uh, a lot of times, goddesses and gods were, were popular back in those days because they had a sexual worship that was due to them. And of course, uh, most people enjoy uh, the sexual activity, and so that's why that God was so, you know, so powerful or so important, but not Diana. So unusual why she's very popular, but yet she was. Back to our section, what did our metalworking tradesman Demetrius, the ringleader, do to cause this great disturbance or commotion? Look at verse 25. He called them, and that would be the craftsmen that profited off the sale of the idol figures of Diana, together with the workers of similar occupation. So again, that would be those that probably he and his fellow craftsmen would make them, and then these other people would kind of sell them, and so they kind of, again, they had this kind of rotating business. And, And so... He gets them all together. He calls his large groups of tradesmen together and he says, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Hey, guys and gals, maybe gals in there, you know that our pockets get full of money because of our sale of these little figurines, Diana. And so that's all he's saying. He's, he's, he's pointing that out. A very obvious fact. Hey, guys, this is how we make our money. This is how we pay our bills. This is how we buy our nice things. This is what we do. Notice that's the first thing that he brings up. Look at verse 26. Moreover, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So I, I, I see him here to cause this great commotion with, with rage in his voice. He, he goes on to say almost all over Asia entirely, this preacher of Jesus Christ, Paul, he's been converting people. And he's been telling people, hey, our Diana, she's not a God at all. And, and, and he's been turning many people away from her. And, and what happens when people that are buying your idols and, you know, they're, they're buying them for friends and they want multiple ones. What happens when people that are buying these little figurines that are making these craftsmen money and these tradesmen money, what happens when they stop believing in the idols that you make? Well, they stop buying the silver figurines and idols that you make money off of, of course. Hence what he says in the next verse 27, read it. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling in disrepair, we could be out of jobs, guys. Our job, our, our, our livelihood could be over. By golly, you'd think, well, maybe they could do something else. You know, they are metal workers. They could make anything. But no, no, no. They wanted to make silver shrines of Diana. That was probably a very profitable business. But he says this also. He kind of throws this in after. But also, notice the but also. Notice the first thing was about money. <laughs> now the first thing, the second thing followed. But also the temple of the great... Goddess Diana may be in, or may be despised in her magnificence, destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. Highly doubt that the whole word, world worshipped 
uh, Diana, but never know. But notice again, there the second part of his big complaint, his big problem was that people would leave the worship of Diana and that her temple wouldn't be that popular anymore. And I, I kind of think since he put the money part first and, and the goddess part second, I, I kind of think that he only threw the goddess part in there to kind of evoke a certain emotion from the people who probably did really care for and love Diana. Um, but we'll, we'll see as we move on. But I, to me, I see Demetrius's God as, as money. So uh, what, what, now that Demetrius's argument for his for the goddess uh, that he loved supposedly that started this disturbance, which it is a good one to the people. Hey, the people are kind of in an uproar, right? He found a common ground, right? He said, "Listen, guys, you worship this goddess Diana, and now that's in danger." And forget about the fact that we, you know, we also we make money here. So he was looking for a certain type of response. Does he get the response? that he wants. Look at verses 28 and first part of 29. When they had heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion. Our our ringleader, Demetrius, do you see why I call him the ringleader now? He's the ringleader because he's the one that started all of this garbage. So he ends up getting not only those who profited from the business and of making and selling the Diana figures, but he also ends up getting the whole city fired up and angry. Uh, Not sure how that happened, but that is what happened. Sadly, this turned into a a frenzied, angry mob situation very quickly. Look how. (laughs) Verses, uh, go back to 29 and let's read 29 through 34. So the whole city was filled with confusion. So now we have the whole city involved and they rushed, that is the mob, into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So as one huge angry mob with no brain, and the reason I'll explain that as I go on why they had no brain, they rush blindly with rage into a theater that was in the city and grab with the intent to attack two fellows named Gaius and Aristarchus who traveled with Paul. Now remember, Demetrius's qualm was with who? Demetrius's qualm was with Paul, not with Demet- not with Aristarchus and Gaius. Not that, his qualm wasn't with them. They weren't the ones that were turning people's hearts away from Diana and, and, and stealing money out of his pocket. It was Paul. But he, here we see this angry, frenzied mob with no brain. They don't know what's going on. They're just angry. They're rushing into the theater. They know that's where Demetrius told them to go. And they just grab whoever they, hey, well, we saw those guys with Paul. Get them. Let's go. Get them. And so that had to be a God thing that Paul wasn't there because had he been there, uh, we're pretty sure the angry mob would have attacked him and killed him. Uh, but, but anyway, Paul wasn't there, but the angry mob comes in anyway and attacks two people that weren't Paul. Why? Well, again, when angry mobs form into an angry frenzied mob, they develop a lynch mob mentality and they don't really think. So they're kind of insane with their frenzied, frenzied mate mob mentality and they grab and attack two guys that aren't even Paul. Look at what happens when Paul finds out that his friends are in danger. Look at verse 30 and 31. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, he actually wanted to rush into a theater that had probably hundreds of angry Ephesians that all wanted to hurt him or kill him. Or That's all I could think their intent was, is to hurt him and kill him. And so he wants to rush in, but the disciples 
would not allow him. Praise God for them. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Paul, full of love for his fellow travel partners, uh, wants to help them by confronting the raging maniac mob, but those disciples who are around him and some city official friends of him protect him, and they won't let him go in this day and lose his life. Again, it wasn't God's time for him to go. He had to go to Rome and testify of Jesus Christ in Rome. Look at the situation with the frenzied mob and why I titled the sermon the way I did. Look at verse 32. So therefore, some therefore, excuse me, cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused and most of them did not even know why they had come together. You can say that Again, crazy mobs get together and they just go insane. They don't look, they not they didn't even know why they had come together. They had all come together under the umbrella of oh Diana, oh our goddess Diana, and the worship of her is in danger. That was the that was the probably the select few that were invited to the original meeting. And then as the people went out, hey, our Diana's in danger, and as they're walking through the city, people are going, What? Diana's what? Who, what? Who now? What now? But of course, as they kept walking through the city and people maybe as they were on the way to the theater to attack Paul, as they were on the way there, people were going, well, what's this all about? Well, I don't know. There's something about this. And then they just started joining in. Well, well we're in here. Let's, let's go. And so they, some of them didn't even know why they were there. They literally lose their minds. People go into a mob mentality. They go out of their minds. They go insane. They get frenzied. Dangerous things happen. People die. People get hurt. People get trampled. And and this is a common thing. Even, Even to this day, when we see mobs like this form, bad, bad, bad things happen. And of course, here we see a bad thing happen. We get all these people involved and Paul's friends and Paul's not even there and they grab him anyway or grab them anyway. And so anyway, uh, this is a crazy situation. Things were so crazy inside of this theater with this frenzied mob, uh, outside of the attack on Paul's innocent travel companions, so so crazy that another situation arises right in the middle of this one crazy situation. Look at verse 33. And, and they drew Alexander. Who, who's they? We don't know who they is, but my guess is if, if as I'm reading this section of scripture, I'm kind of getting a picture that's being painted in my mind. And who I see is they are a group of people that are there outside of Gaius and Aristarchus. There's a group of people that are there, and they grab, they draw Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews, putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. So what I see here in my picture is that some random bystander Jews get caught in the middle of this angry, frenzied mob, Jews who most likely have nothing to do with the situation at all. Remember, they were in a theater. Maybe they were there even to just see a play. <laughs> you know, it's common, common sense, right? I mean, they're there. It's a, it's a theater. They were probably there to socialize or see a play or see a play then socialize. You know, that's what we do today in movie theaters. We go to the movie theater and afterwards. We stand around and talk. And that's maybe that's what these people are doing. And, and here comes this angry, crazy, out of their mind mob. And, and, there are these Jews and they're there and they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And, and people don't even know why they're there, but people are angry. Um, you don't know, they may have pitchforks. They may have, you know, they, they may have uh, all dangerous tools, implements in their hands ready to kill Paul. We don't even know what, what it looks like, but we know that they're all there and they're all angry and they're all 
you know, maybe shouting and, and they're not happy. And, and so these Jews that are kind of caught in this big mess, they don't know what to do in this fallout. Imagine yourself in a very similar situation. These guys, these Jews here, are innocent. And, and all of a sudden, dozens, maybe hundreds of angry people in a mob storm in and attack two guys in a theater. Uh, you think they might even turn on you. <laughs> you don't know. Is there any guarantee they just grabbed two people that they didn't even know who they were? And so how do you know they're not going to grab you? So, so what do you do in their situation? Well, these guys not knowing what to do. Well, they just grab some Jew named Alexander out of the little group that they had there. And they tell him, hey, go, go and try to talk this mob down. Hey, you're a pretty good talker. Hey, talk, ask them why they're even angry or, or, or tell them we're innocent or do something, but help us, you know, help us. And then they kind of push them forward. I mean, seems like any good idea could be, right? I mean, you don't know what to do, so hey, let's try this, right? It, it does. But when the mindless ones in the anger mob realize that he's a Jew, remember Paul was a Jew, that's important. Look at verse 34. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice for about two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So they hear him, but then they realize he's Jewish. So they were kind of willing to hear his voice. But then as, as soon as they realized he was Jewish, maybe because he had a Jewish accent, maybe he tried to speak to them in Hebrew, maybe it was the clothes they were wearing. But whatever the case may be, they realized that he was a Jew and not Greek you know, as they were Greek, and so they didn't want to listen to him. Why? Uh, maybe to them, one Jew was as another. That's a wrong idea to have, you know. Well, one white person is as another, or one black person is as another. Now, that's all stereotyping, and that's not good, but to these angry, frenzied mob here, they don't have a brain, and so one Jew to them is maybe as another, and, they th and their thinking is flawed uh, automatically, and they think this guy is involved with Paul, and then they, they don't even want to hear him. They're there to get Paul. Paul's not there. They're angry. Some of them don't even know why they're there. And then all of a sudden, they just have, you know, this, this mob mentality. They start screaming out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Uh, now, it would be one thing, and I get up here and I preach for about an hour every Sunday, almost every Sunday. But I say lots of different words, right? And I teach the Bible, <laughs> tell you about God's ways, and so on and so forth. If I got up here and for a straight two hours, I said, and I just yelled at the top of my lungs, Jesus is God! Jesus is God! Jesus is God! I, I, I'll guarantee you, I, I, nobody, <laughs> I wouldn't be a preacher, I'd be a fool. And, and so just think about how boring that would get. Well, these guys here, two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians! And it would be like a chant, great is Diana of the Ephesians! Wow! So, so these guys have rage in their hearts, and, and for they don't even know why at this point, and they aren't willing to be calmed down, especially not by a Jew, same lineage or same, you know, nationality as Paul. And so they continue to rage on. Good attempt by Alexander and the bystander Jews to calm down the anger mob, but it doesn't quite work. Look what happens next in our next verse. I think I see God step in again here. Look at verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, well, where did he come from? 
He may have been there. I don't think so. Had he been there for the two hours that they were scramming, he probably wouldn't have let that go on. But he was the city clerk nonetheless, which means that their attention of screaming and yelling and raging into the theater and, and probably got the attention of more than just the people in the theater. Kind of probably got the attention of a lot of people in the town. Probably woke up people in their houses. This might have been in the evening. Either way, this is not something that is normally something that happens. So, of course, the city clerk gets involved. And I, I think he had success in quieting this crowd because he was a Greek a Gentile himself. Maybe he was even a homegrown Ephesian. But either way, the angry mob knew him personally. Maybe he was a good orator. Maybe he did a lot of speaking. But either way, he comes in and he quiets down the crowd, of course, probably speaking to them in their own language, of course, and then he gets the crowd quieted. Look, look at what this brilliant city clerk says. He says this, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana uh, and of the image which fell down from Zeus, or you could say an image, some kind of thing that fell down from heaven. At some point, obviously, there was some, some type of asteroid that fell down to earth in or around the Asian city of Ephesus, or even maybe before the city was founded. Maybe this image, maybe this little asteroid, this little rock that fell down from heaven, maybe it even started the city of Ephesus. We don't know. But anyway, the Greek peoples had taken it as some sign from the gods, because that's kind of how they did it. Then, if anything astronomical weird hap- astronomically weird happened, or any kind of weird you know anomaly happened, they would take it as a sign from the gods. And of course, they believed in gods. They were polytheistic, unlike Paul and the Jews. They were monotheistic, which means they believed in one god. And of course, their goddess that they named Diana, also counterpart. Artemis would be like Diana Artemis. They were kind of the same God. And since what they had believed to be a sign fell down to earth in or around Ephesus, they built a temple to this goddess to worship her. Hence why the city of Ephesus was the guardian of their false goddess Diana, as Luke writes there in verse 35. Moving on. So this brilliant city clerk quiets this wild mob, speaking to them in their own language and them knowing him personally, and then tells them some nice things about their goddess. That is always something to do when you want to quiet somebody that's angry. Well, you speak nice things to them. Hey, guys, remember this. And hey, you know, that goddess in Israel. Yeah, great goddess, great goddess. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, you know what? And then I could see the rationale kind of setting back in with the mob. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, this is the temple. We are the guardian of, of the temple, Diana. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that thing. That, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he's got them thinking now. He's got them thinking about the past. He's got them thinking about who they are. He's got them thinking about what their city's all about. Look what he says next after he's got them kind of calmed down, says some nice things about their goddess. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, obviously there were some witnesses to the meteorite or something that fell from space at one point. Plus they knew about this and so they knew that they were the principal or main city that was most likely built for the Diana worship. And with these well-made points, he goes on to say, well, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. No, nothing like a little elbow in the face, right? Nothing like a little bit of, hey, really shut up. Really quiet down, knock it off. See, he knew that these guys were out of control. He knew that they were a crazy 
frenzied mob and this meant that they needed to calm down so now that he had them calm down and he had their full attention he breaks them the hard real truths uh, you need to calm down and go slowly with your next steps instead of rashly and quick why does he say that verse 37 there's a multiple amount of reasons here for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. This, this crazy, frenzied Ephesian mob had grabbed, so accosted Paul's two travel companions, and nobody actually accused them of doing anything wrong. These guys were innocent, and so they just grab them, but I'm sure in their, ang in their anger and in their frenzy that they might have even wanted to kill them. But, you know, praise God that, that they didn't. I think that was also his hand. Uh, and anyway, our brilliant city clerk picks up on this and reminds them that they have the wrong fellows in custody. And they have innocent people. Another good wake-up call. Uh, but they had been so out of control that they simply didn't realize it. This city clerk was definitely making a lot of sense in his amazingly clear and true statements and getting the wild and out-of-control frenzied mob to quiet down and listen. Plus, it stopped them from, from becoming murderers. Because, of course, as they had these two guys, the more angry they got, they were there, I'm sure, to kill Paul. But, of course, Paul wasn't there, and so... Eventually, I would have thought had he not stepped in, they probably would have killed Paul's two travel companions, which is a good thing for Paul's Macedonian travel companions. And I'm sure they weren't ready to be brutally murdered because of just their simple association with Paul. And it was a good thing for those uh, confused Ephesian people in a frenzied mob who probably didn't want to face their government's punishment for murder. So good points from this city clerk. Praise God for him. It seems to me that, again, God put him there for such a time as this. Uh, so now, now he's already calmed them down by making some amazing points. And again, praise God that he had him there to put a stop to the harm of Paul's travel companions that were innocent. But he doesn't stop there. Listen to the powerful things he closes his speech with. Heads up, though, while you're listening, remember what I had kind of said in the beginning. Who, who was... Demetrius's real God. Who, who was he really worshiping? Well, while you listen to these last statements, see if you can pick up on a huge detail also that shows exactly what kind of person and people Demetrius the ringleader and his fellow craftsmen really are. Look at Acts 19, 38 through 41. Therefore, he says, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquirer to make, it should be determined in the lawful assembly. In, in other words, guys and gals, we are a civilized people. We are a civilized situation. And civil, or, I'm sorry, we are a civilized people and we are a civilized society. And civilized people in a civilized society have courts to deal with wrongdoings. If these men you've accused have done anything wrong, tell your ringleader, Demetrius, and the fellow craftsmen that they need to take it up, uh, take up their wrong in the city's civilized legal court system. Verse 40. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. They had no good reason as no civilized society has the right to allow mobs to, to form to take out what they call vigilante justice. 
that is not accepted in any normal civilized society. In any normal civilized society, if you have anything wrong with anybody, you don't get a mob together because if you do, you're going to go, you're going to hurt people, you're going to cause damage, and guess what? You're going to end up going to jail or you're going to go to prison or if you kill somebody, you could even get life in prison or the death penalty. So they lived in a civilized society. And this guy's just bringing up the fact of, hey, you, you guys are, are wrong. You don't have a good reason. And this is not really the way we handle things, right? Uh, they were in danger of angering the local government authority, which most likely was the Romans, as it was in Jesus' day, as, as Jerusalem at, in Jesus' day, and upon, even on to 70 AD, was subjugated by Rome and so forth. You know, probably Asia was here at this time. And this wasn't anything anybody wanted to do. See, if you made the Romans angry, they definitely could make any offender's lives not worth living. And if you ask me, you know, I, I have kind of my own thing, but I, I think that people should be punished upon according to what they do and according to their wrong. And so, you know, to me, you don't gather a mob together. You do what's right in the eyes of the law, which the Bible says God put the law on the earth as a righteous thing for people to follow, not unrighteousness. So it's ridiculous to me that Demetrius even started this uproar in the first place. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, anyway, FYI on that last thought, if you are part of God's church, he just said here, if you got anything wrong or unlawful, bring it to the courts, right? If you're part of God's church, the Bible says if you're a real Christian, you take it up with the church. Don't be bringing people to court. That's not the godly way to do it. Paul talks about that. Anyway, just, just, to, just to throw it in there. But our last verse of today, verse 41, and when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the clerk has them calm down and talk down from their crazy, frenzied attitude and mindset and this craziness that's going on. And he dismisses them. They go home without continuing to be an angry and out-of-control mob bent on destroying Paul and anyone else, and they go home without getting in trouble with the law and bringing the Roman law down on their heads and the consequences for what they were really doing. Praise God for this city clerk. By the way, did you catch the huge detail there about what kind of people Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen really were and who their God really was? Well, I'm going to get to that after the, what kind of people they were. The clerk pointed out there in verse 38, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and the proconsuls let them bring charges against one another. The city clerk speaks of Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen in the third person there. He, he speaks to them, in my eyes, the way I read that, as if they're not even present with the mob at all, which means that they weren't there really defending Diana, but getting to the type of people they were, if Demetrius the ringleader and his fellow craftsmen weren't even there, and yet they were the ones that started, started the crazy, huge, frenzied mob, this just shows me that they were really cowardly, dirty dogs. And they served the two most popular gods in all the world. Uh, do you realize who their real god was? Do you realize who they really lived for? Two, it definitely wasn't Diana, because if it were, and you really loved your God, well, think about it. 
if you loved your God and you really were standing up for the God that you believed in, why wouldn't you? Because Demetrius was a pretty smart fella. He was a businessman. Got a whole mob together, got this whole mob to rush into the theater, him and the other fellow tradesmen not even being there. So they started it, but weren't, weren't willing to go, which means they weren't willing to face the consequences of what they did, or what the mob that they started, because they knew the mob was a dangerous thing and they knew the uproar could have been really, really, really unhealthy for those who went which means that they were really there not for Diana, but they were there for the two most popular gods of all the world, the first. I don't see their god being, goddess being Diana. I see it being the most first popular ever, money. Excuse me. Most second popular ever, money. Uh, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen gathered a mob together to kill Paul, not for the sake of the false goddess Diana, but to stop Paul from hurting their business and so taking money out of their pockets. If they really were there for Diana, then of course Diana would have, if they believed in her for real, they would have gone for, you know, the sacrifice of my freedom or, you know, me being put in prison. Hey, Diana, I really love you. You can see that I'm doing that for you. And so, you know, can I have favor? But of course they didn't, which means that was just something to get the people riled up to attack Paul so that the people would stop converting and taking money out of his pockets. So many people live for the false god of money. It's insane. That was then. They also, though, who did they really live for? Well, the first most popular god ever, and I'll talk about that as I keep going here in just a minute, but they lived for themselves. The money was just a means, of course, to live the lifestyles that they wanted to live where they wanted to live. That was them us today, who would you say that your God is today? Who do you live for? Who do you serve? Who your God is is known by the kind of life you live and the things and activities that consume you. For instance, if one of your gods is food, then you will live to eat, not eat just so that you can stay alive. There's a difference, you know. And you see who you live for, if you're living so that you can eat, well, then that's a God that you serve. It's a false God that you serve. If one of your gods is money, like Demetrius and, you know, the silversmith and all his fellow craftsmen, then you will live to work. You'll live to make money. You'll live and do whatever it takes to make a lot of money, even making a mob and creating a mob and going off. And they knew their intent was once they found Paul to kill him. So you could say that Demetrius, had he been called into question for this, had he gone, that his crime could have been premeditated murder because that's what his intent was to get Paul and to murder Paul. And that's what he would do for money. Uh, not he, he didn't work so that he could live and provide you know, a good financial basis for his family. He, he lived to work, not worked so that he could live and support his family. Us today, if your God is the God of money, you will be the same. You will live to work and live to do all that you can to get that money and to do whatever whatever means necessary 
to get that money, to get that paper, as they like to say on the streets. But if your God is Jesus Christ, and he is your saving God, the one that saves, the real Jesus Christ of the Bible, then your life will be lived, practicing, and even consumed with the ways that he said to live, and following him, and doing the things that he did. And this is what the Bible says, 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him, that would be Jesus Christ, ought to himself also to walk just as he, or Jesus, walked. Maybe your God is the most popular God ever, the one that Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen were really serving, was themselves. Maybe that's your God. Maybe you serve yourself. That is the way people are born. From the womb we are our own gods, meaning that from birth we live solely for ourselves, doing the things that make ourselves or our fleshly persons happy. Once we're born, people begin to please their fleshly desires, doing the things that make them happy. Just look around at the different people groups all over the world. This is how people live. We are self-serving. And if you say, well, no, I love it. I, I like to help people. Well, I would ask you why you like to help people. And it's mostly because I would say, and because of my own experiences and people I've talked to and things I've heard, it's because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel worthy. It makes you feel like you've done something good. So who are you really serving, even if you want to help other people? Most likely, 9 out of 10, 9.5 out of 10, it's still yourself. You see, people are consumed and live for eating the foods that taste good to themselves, serving the gods that they want to serve and the religions that they want to be a part of. I had a conversation with a guy some time back who uh, we were talking about Christianity and, and he had made the comment about, hey, you know, I just choose to serve the Eastern religions, you know, they are, or to believe in them. They, they seem to make the most this and, you know, they seem to be that. And they, I said, well, sir, I said, how do you know they're really true? I said, you know, yes, they're who you choose. I said, but how do you know that they're really right? And he said, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I never said that they were the correct gods because I had told him there's proof of Christianity and proof of Jesus Christ as being the one true God. And, and he made the comment of, no, I don't, I don't, that's, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I can prove them. Or, he goes, I'm just, I'm just telling you that as far as my preference, well, that's to make himself happy, self, right? Selfish, live for ourselves, self-serving. He says, I just choose for myself that, you know, those are the, you know, the religions that I think are, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, then again, he's serving the religion. He, he's believing in the real religion that makes him feel good. Self-serving. People go to the places they want to go. They build or build houses or buildings that they want to live in. They live where they want to live. They take what they want to have. They buy the stuff that they want that makes them happy. And simply overall, they do and they live their lives practicing all the things that they want to practice. And they live self-serving lives to make their fleshly person happy and comfortable and satisfied. But you see, sadly... If you serve the gods of money or yourself or stuff to make you happy, to be self-serving to you to make you happy, then you'll actually be miserable for those gods don't offer anything more than some short-term 
temporal pleasure. All of those things that anyone can be consumed with to please themselves and their flesh are all just fleeting pleasures. They don't last forever and they don't offer eternal life. I call them futile gods, empty, futile gods. Now, on the other hand, if your God is Jesus Christ, if he is really your God, then your life will resemble the life he lived. Remember 1 John 2, 6. And again, you will, that means you'll follow him and you'll practice living your life the way he said to him. And, and he said the very first thing, and I'll get to it in just a moment, but his very first thing to follow him was deny yourself. And I'll get to what that means in just a moment. And since he is the God of all creation, the amazing creator God, and he made all heaven and all earth and everything in them, he's the God of salvation. And heaven's his. You see, when you serve yourself as a God, yourself didn't make any afterlife. Yourself, after you die, that's just it. But the God of all heaven and earth, eternity and past, He's the God of salvation, the God of heaven, the only God that offers eternal life, and he offers it to all by only those that turn to Jesus Christ the way he said to and to become partakers of it, partakers of a life that can be attained after this temporary life on earth is extinguished. For there is a true fact, 100% of people that have ever lived have died. And 100% of people even today that are going to live, well, they're going to die Someday, or their body's going to be transformed even if the rapture happens, and the body's going to cease to exist. So a death will happen to our bodies 100%. If Jesus Christ is your God, then you would have taken the steps that he gives in Matthew 16, where he tells mankind how one must come to him for relationship and eternal life, not their own way, but his way, and where he even talks about the emptiness of the God of self and stuff and money, along with the eternal result of serving those false, hopeless, futile gods. Listen to what he says, Matthew 16, 24-26. As I said, the very first thing he says, then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And as I said already, as we're born as the gods of our own lives... He says, if you want to follow me, you got to take yourself off your throne. Deny self. Take yourself off the throne of your life and get rid of him. You got to be done with him. He, he can't lead your life anymore. Again, if yourself is your God, yourself can't make eternal life. Yourself can't make you happy. Everything you want, well, you'll never have enough, so on and so forth. Yourself is a futile God. That's why he says, let him deny himself. And he follows up then with how to then become saved and how to then become or have a relationship with God. And he says, and take up your cross and follow me. So remove yourself off the throne of your life. Stop living for self and consumed with yourself and serving yourself. And serve me. Put me on the throne of your life and let me be the God of your life. Use your choice and say, you know, I don't want to serve myself anymore. I want to serve the God of all creation, Jesus Christ. For verse 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, We'll find it. You want to save your life right now and you want to rule your life and you want to be the God of your own life now? Well, then you know what? That's fine. God will let you. 
But again, that God can't save you. The God of yourself can't save you, can't give you eternal life. But, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake, well, he will find it. If you lose your life or lose the control that you have over your life and you give it away, denying yourself, for my sake, and so you're putting me on the throne of your life, then, of course, you will find it. You'll find eternal life. For look at what he says, the gods of money, the gods of self, verse 26. For what profit, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And there's a reason why everybody wants to be the god of their own lives. And that reason is, well, I can do what I want. I can earn what I want. I can buy the things that I want. I'm my own God. But Jesus says, even if you were to have everything, and you could, I mean, possibly have everything that you've ever wanted. I don't think you could ever have everything that you'd ever want. Future tense, because the Bible says the eyes of man are never satisfied. So as you got more, and this used to be my problem, as I was, was this way, used to be this way, before Jesus Christ saved me, I would get things, but it was never enough. It was never enough. I'd get things, and I'd get things I wanted, and I'd get them, and all right, I'd get them. And that would last five minutes. And that would last one week. Uh, that would last one month. And then all of a sudden, oh, man. Man, that new car that I just had to have, oh, man, it's not, yeah, it's all right. And then what I do? Start looking ahead to the next model, the more expensive model. Because guess what? I wanted to serve self. And that's, Jesus said, even if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what's it going to profit you? Because you can have things, but those things aren't going to get you anywhere. Those things only offer a temporal pleasure now. Some people love money so much, and they think they, think they could take it with them, but yet, there's one thing you've never seen in life. You've never seen a hearse followed by a moving truck. Never seen a hearse with a tow hitch that's got a trailer behind it with all their stuff in it. Because you know what? When you die, you can't take anything with you. Your life ends here and your soul goes to the next reality, which is either heaven or hell. People, you'll either love and serve God Almighty and Jesus Christ, or you'll ultimately serve yourself. And that goes for whatever you, th- money or whatever, they all lead any other thing other than Jesus Christ is going to eventually lead to self-worship. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to love God and Jesus Christ and the Bible, and you're going to come to them their way they said to come to them, or you're going to love self. Most people love themselves as their own God. Uh, We will either come to Him as Jesus Christ said to, repentance and to the surrender of our lives to him, making him the Lord of our lives, putting him on the throne of our lives, submitting our lives to him as master, taking ourselves off the throne and our lives and placing him on the throne of our lives, and we'll let him make us born again, or we will try to come to him our way, futile, and we'll try to serve ourselves and think that's going to get us somewhere. Um, But if we do it our way, then we're not serving him, we're serving ourselves. Once again, if Jesus Christ is not your God, the one whom you live for, the one whom, whose teachings lead and guide your life and the things that you practice, then you will not go to heaven when you die. And even worse than that, Jesus says that you, you become his enemy. If you're not on his side, 
you're against him. And he doesn't want that. He gave his only begotten son to die for your sins on the cross, to live for you. To live for you. He just wants you to turn to him and repent. And he wants you to surrender to Jesus Christ today and be saved. He he loves you and is waiting for you to surrender. If you are his and you practice the ways which he said to live, then please endure to the end and keep going for Jesus Christ more and more until you either die or join him or he comes back. And and, and be careful, for Jesus said, Matthew 24, uh, only those that endure to the end should be saved. But, But if Jesus Christ is not your God, then turn, please today, turn and surrender and make him the God of your life and stop serving yourself. For he or she is a futile God and will not get you anywhere but death and hell forever. Listen, Jesus Christ is worth it all the way, so please turn to him today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your great love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the ways in which in your word you you tell us how to come to you, the ways in, in your word in which you tell us how to be saved, how to stay away from the pitfalls of the, the false gods of money and self and all those things, Lord God. Thank you that you show us all those things <laughs> and that you give us the warnings to all those things. For God, there'll be nobody that stands before you when they die because this is when we die, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, when we, when we stand there, we're either judged as we've, we, we turned to you and you were our God and we served you and you made us born again and, and we turned to you and what we loved you and we stuck it out to the end or even if we fell away, we came back and we stand before you as whole and your blood covers us and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And, and praise God, we're in eternity forever if we're yours. But Lord, if we're not yours, there's going to be nobody standing there before your throne and they're going to go... You're going to say, well, you know, you chose to be your own God, and so there you go. And they're not going to go, oh, I didn't know that I was my own God. I didn't know. Oh, man, really? I was my own God? For real? They're not not going to be shocked. They're going to know, Lord God, because we know innately whom we serve. So, God, I pray right now for those that are listening to this message, those that are not yours, I pray, dear God, that you would, Lord, reveal it to them again today, Lord God, that they're not yours and that they don't serve you. And God, I pray that you'd show them the reality of the the emptiness of this life and the end result of what this life will bring. Please, dear God, help them to come to repentance, to life in Jesus Christ, and help them to turn to you today and be saved. We love you and praise you. And thank you, dear God in heaven. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name.